Welcome to the Top Order Podcast, another episode of the Cricketing Hall of Fame. Today, we are recording remotely. We're locked down in Auckland and set to be for a few more weeks yet, which means we will get plenty more episodes of the Hall of Fame in alongside regular programming. This week, though, we're going to be counting down from number 90 uh, to number 86 on the list. So stay tuned. So, Lippy, I'm going to come to you first just before we introduce our number 90 on the list because I think you've got some, uh, yeah, some ribbing to do. Baldy, I just want to know, you know, you sent us this, the list of the five people that we're supposed to look at and, you know, people from countries other than uh, Australia and England might have a few questions and, uh, like, are we going to get any players outside of the big three, uh, you know, maybe see a New Zealander sometime soon? Oh, well, yeah, we'll, we'll see a couple of New Zealanders. There's there's a couple on the list. There's uh, there's a couple of Sri Lankans. There's Pakistanis. There's ten Indian players on the list. Twelve South Africans. Sixteen from the West Indies, uh, and then England and and Australia obviously feature heavily. Uh, twenty three and twenty five players in in the top one hundred. But there are there are plenty of representation from uh, the non big three nations. We had two in our first ten and. Andy Roberts and uh, Ian Bishop, and there's there's plenty more to come from uh, South Africa and West Indies coming up in, in this segment of 10. But today it's a, a pretty antipodean uh, kind of flavour to 90 to 86. Are we ready to kick off, lads? Or have you got yeah, more questions, too? We're ready to kick off. So, yeah, before we get to Sir Edmund Hillary, we've got yeah a few more Aussies and uh, uh, an Englishman to get out of the way. Where are we starting with, uh, with number 90 on this episode boarding right we'll put six minutes on the clock adam to talk about dennis compton from england uh, born in 1918 so he was only 21 when uh, world war ii intervened so he spanned the pre and post-war eras he played 100 uh, sorry he played 71 tests for england 131 innings 5807 runs at an average of 50.06 so a pretty impressive average a higher score of 278 with 1700s uh, and an average above replacement player. So his average above the replacement players in his era, plus six, 7.64. So that's good for 37th uh, all-time of the players that qualified for the Hall of Fame. So, you know, a lot of stats in there inside uh, the top 40. Obviously, a, a tremendous player for England, both pre- and post-war. Unfortunately, you know, his age 21 to 27 seasons were interrupted by World War Two. So uh, not only did he suffer from a significant knee injury uh, and knee surgery that, that you know changed his career, but obviously missed out on some some prime batting seasons uh, for Dennis Compton, at least in international cricket. And he did play a lot of first-class cricket over in India as well as part of his tour uh, with the British Army in, in India. Um, Stuart, you wanted to come in next with, with thoughts on, on Dennis Compton. Oh, look, I just wanted to basically, before we get to the cricket stuff, we've got to give him a shout out for his football, right? He's an Arsenal player. We've got to, uh, he's signed by the great Herbert Chapman, won the league in 1948. How good is that? Yeah, it does feature heavily in the write-up, and I, I was interested to note that in your editing you took it out, so I can only assume that you're trying to uh, take it out of the writing so you could talk about it tonight. Yes, it did feature in an FA Cup win, I think, for Arsenal. Uh, played some unofficial fixtures for England during the war uh, before he was uh, sent over with as part of the British Army over to play uh, cricket and, and prepare troops for the front in India. So a very interesting uh, war period for Dennis Compton. But like I said, a, a significant knee injury. And I guess for me, the key here for him is that he played on after that knee injury. It was so bad, they he had his kneecap removed 
um, and was able to continue playing first class and in international cricket after that. And, you know, if you think about significant knee injuries now, 20 years ago, the prognosis for a, a, a reconstruction or a significant knee injury is nowhere near as, as positive and as, as full a recovery as it is today. So I was quite surprised to see him get such a significant industry, uh, in injury, I should say, and carry on playing. Yeah, for, for me, Dennis Compton just brings back um, look, memories of talking to my, my dad about, about cricket. Um, my dad, born in 1942, and, and um, talked a hell of a lot about Compton, particularly, as you mentioned, that sort of dual code component that, you know, he did, um, I think, win a league title and an FA Cup with, with Arsenal at, at Highbury. And then I think the, the other story that sticks in my mind as well was that he was one of these guys that, you know, probably didn't really do too many uh, calisthenics or, or stretches. Um, he'd just sort of rock up, change into his whites and, and get on with it. Um, and, and I don't know whether this is an urban legend or not, but apparently turned up for a test match once against South Africa without his kit bag. Um, so ran into the museum um, at Old Trafford, found an antique bat that was in the um, the Old Trafford Museum and went out and scored 150 and 70 in the game. Um, so, yeah, just those kind of stories of him and, and just sort of a little bit of a, what we would describe in the UK as a bit of a Roy of the Rovers um, sort of character. He could turn his hand uh, to anything. And, and certainly when you read his sort of legacy and his biography, cricket, uh, football, and, and as well, you know, being part of the, the, the war efforts as well. So just a bit of a legend. Um, and not to, not to sort of discount his stats, averaging 50 in that era was, you know, was, was pretty good when you, you think about the, some of the pitches that they were, uh, they were playing on in that sort of era as well. Yeah, what what stood out for me actually about um, about Dennis Compton was was the commercial side of things. How I was reading through a few of the things that he, he he's done, and they're talking about how he commercialized his talent, how he was the face of Brill Cream uh, for a number of years, and and also he got a shout out at the Oscars, uh, which I found really really interesting. Uh, cricket all over the place, but um, just to to also pick up on Baldy's point there around. Uh, the war taking that that really sort of peak time out of him coming out of the war I think it was in 1947 he scored over a thousand runs 1200 runs or 1100 runs in nine test matches uh six six hundreds in that season incredible yeah uh, and you can see there's a big chunk taken out of his peak there yeah that 1947 he in that English summer he scored 3816 runs with 18 centuries in first class cricket that summer and that's I mean that's that's incredible just absolutely incredible. Baldy, how do we reconcile the um, the the fact, you know, the errors? How how does he compare like to other batters in that era? In that era, he he compares pretty well. I mean, in the thirties and forties, batting averages were kind of never higher. So the average or, or kind of roundabout median batting average was pretty high. It was up around fifty. Um, but for Dennis Compton's particular era, when he played, his Average above replacement player, so average above average, if you like, the, the Jared Kimber runs above average metric, he was plus 7.6. So that's good for 37th all time. So, you know, even though averages were high in the in the late 30s, early 40s, and they dropped away significantly in, in the 1950s, uh, Dennis Compton was certainly still up there. And, of course, England being one of the tougher places to bat traditionally in the world cricket because of the movement, because of the nip off the seam, any assistance in those wickets was going to always be amplified in English conditions. So, you know, an average of 50 at the top order in England, even in a period of time that was good for batting, uh, historically, uh, just a tremendous effort. 
Oh, perfect. You'll hear the timer going off almost right on cue there, Baldy. So we'll stick another six minutes um, on the clock. We're going to um, travel, what, 14,000 kilometres um, south to your home nation um, for number 89 on the list. So the clock's going to going to start now. Who have we got at 89? At 89 in the Top Order Podcast Test Cricket Hall of Fame is Neil Harvey from Australia. He played a similar number of test matches to Dennis Compton, actually. 79 tests, 6,149 runs for Neil Harvey at a batting average of 48.41. But it's the 21 centuries that I want to highlight in his 79 tests. So a century almost every four tests, just about or slightly better than that. Um, an incredible rate of, of hundreds per hundred innings. Uh, that ranks 20th of all time in terms of hundreds per hundred innings. His average above replacement player is, is plus 5.9, and obviously Neil Harvey batted right into the 60s. He started his career just after World War II, so he batted through the 50s where averages were a little bit lower. Uh, AARP is, is plus 5.9, so a tremendous cricketer. I just want to highlight, I don't know if you guys have seen the peak series for Neil Harvey, his three-peak series, 660 runs in South Africa in 1949-50 at an average of 131. 834 runs in a series in 1952-3 when South Africa toured Australia at an average of 92.66 with 400s. Um, that 1949-50 series, he scored 400s in that series as well. And then in 1955, uh, West Indies in West Indies, 650 runs at an average of 108.3 with one, two... 200s, a double hundred, and a, and a 50 in there as well. So, you know, when when he scored big and when he had big series, he had series unlike almost any other player in world cricket. And there's no wonder that, you know, post-war, Neil Harvey was being compared to Bradman in terms of some of his output. And you can see that with the, the three series that we've highlighted, you know, 650 runs plus in each of those series, averaging 90, and each one of them had three or 400s. I mean... You know, only 10 or 12 batsmen have scored 400s in a series and Neil Harvey did it twice. So just an incredible cricketer and, and someone who I wished I could have watched. And for me, the nearest comparison that I could see looking at some of his grainy YouTube footage and the very little that you can see of him, he just looks a lot like a lot like Mike Hussey for me. Just a real stylish, elegant left-hander through the offside, hit the cover drive incredibly well. Um, just a wonderfully, wonderfully classy player. Yeah, with the eye test, I spent a lot of time actually having a look through YouTube as well. He looked like a batsman that really played like within himself. He was one of those batsmen that uh, a bowler needed to actually get him out. He wasn't gonna he wasn't gonna give his wicket away, and that is reflected in those peak series that you talk about. Uh, he scored his runs in, in massive clumps. I think there was there was two significant periods where he scored three hundreds in three games and four hundreds in four consecutive games and those were separate so he's one of those guys that really made you work for his wicket and he put you to the sword when he got in I, I loved seeing Neil Harvey on this list I, I used to have a video when I was uh, well I've, I think I've still got it somewhere in a box uh, of the Invincibles tour and, and you know a documentary series it, it came in a little double set with uh, with a Don Bradman video on, and, and uh, you know and back in the days when VCRs actually uh, were a thing but Neil Harvey's tour of, of the, you know, the Invincibles tour, I think he was 19 on the tour. I think he was seven years younger, perhaps, than, than everyone else on the team. And there's some awesome footage there of them having a net on the, on the ship over there. They, they make a ball out of rope. They dunk it in the water before every ball and they skid it off the, the, the deck there. It's, it's just fantastic. And, you know, to think about, I often think about, you know, what cricket was like back then when you spent, you know, five weeks on this 
trip and you know it's just just staggering sort of stuff and yeah when you see that footage Baldy I think you in your write-up you you said that um he was kind of the player that you think if if Don Bradman hadn't have had the success he had people might be might have said you know Ricky Ponting's the new Neil Harvey yeah, that's the that's the way that I kind of feel about it. I mean, in terms of that kind of post-war period, he was he was the big player post World War Two for Australia in terms of their batting. You know, he averaged close to fifty. He had that propensity to go on and get massive, massive scores and 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 have great series. So, I think without Bradman, you know, guys like Michael um, Michael Hussey, who I'm sure we'll get onto at some point in the list, they would be the guy who would be the next Neil Harvey or or the new Neil Harvey. And I think he just doesn't get as much credit for his career because he had to follow in in Bradman's footsteps and I guess it's a lot like bowlers who have to follow Warren or Murley or you know the poor the poor England bowlers who are going to have to follow Jimmy Anderson and Stuart Broad Adam yeah a couple of things for me so number one conversion rates really stands out here um 2100s versus 2450s the other thing sort of interesting bit of trivia uh, Neil Fairbrother, who played a lot of one-day cricket for England, actually took his name. Um, Neil Fairbrother's mother's favourite cricketer was uh, was Neil Harvey, hence uh, he's uh, christened Neil Harvey Fairbrother. And then the third thing, and just to pick up on Lippy's point around his debut 100 at 19 on the Ashes tour, apparently he was too scared to talk to Don Bradman on that tour. And so would ask questions via a third party and, and got um, a message back from the Don, which was uh, just keep the ball on the deck, son, and you'll be all right. Um, so, yeah, and he certainly was all right in terms of his output um, in, his, uh, in, in his career. Cool. Well, that just about wraps up time almost to the, uh, the second on Neil Harvey as well. We don't go too far, um, but we do change states here, Baldy, to go to number... Um, 88 on the list and uh, we're going to need a few boos here because it's a, a bit of a pantomime uh, villain let me stick six minutes on the clock and you can talk us through um, the next um, Antipodean link on this uh, on this list well you won't be getting any boos from me number 88 on the list is a man from my hometown I played cricket on on fields adjacent to this player growing up as a kid he was a year older than me or so so he played in the grade higher than me and certainly uh, scaled heights of world cricket far in excess of my own. Number 88 on the list from Townsville, North Queensland, is Mitchell Johnson. 73 tests for Mitchell Johnson, 313 wickets, an average of 28.4. But the, the real statistic for me is the strike rate, 51.1 for a fast bowler bowling in the big bat era uh, post-2000 is just a tremendous strike rate when players were, you know, dominating with the bat rather than with the ball. Uh, best of best of uh, inning, best bowling in an innings, 8 for 61 and 12 for 127. He had t- uh, three 10-wicket hauls, uh, which is 25th all-time, and his 10-wicket rate was sort of 44-45, and his average above replacement player sort of in the early 40s as well. But, you know, when I think about Mitchell Johnson, not only do I have a bias because he's from my own town and, and I've sort of watched him play as a as a kid, never really against him very much at all. Um, just the the absolute ability to strike fear into the hearts of modern players. And I mean, it's, I think it's underrated the fact that even in the last 10 or 20 years, a player like Mitchell Johnson or like Dale Stain, even with all the protective gear and all the training that batters get, he is still able to strike genuine fear uh, into into. You know, great batsman. Graham Smith uh, was injured. I think he broke Graham Smith's hand in a test match. You know, he really, really did have that enforcer, that intimidating factor. But 
he, he's not an individual that's like that. He's not, um, he's not an aggressive guy off the field. He was a very shy guy growing up, very quiet, very reserved, incredibly respectful and well-mannered kid whenever he got around any of the representative scenes uh, up in my hometown. Whenever he was in the you know local representative squads, he was always very polite, very respectful. There was none of that kind of on-field persona that you see that's very aggressive and that kind of you know Australian fast bowler persona. You just didn't see that with Mitchell Johnson growing up as a kid, and he's a, a really nice guy off the field. And I probably should let somebody else talk about their impression of Mitchell Johnson because I could go on and on all day. But uh, for me, a, a, a tremendous, a tremendous Queenslander, and I would be, I'd be remiss if I didn't point out that he was a Queenslander um, and, a, and a fantastic fast bowler for Australia, strike bowler. Binksy, I reckon you should go first because I want to contrast that with, uh, with with what the English think of uh, Mitchell Johnson, because he certainly had his moments with uh, against England. Yeah, look, he certainly did. And I, I think became a little bit of a figure of fun for the Barmy Army with some of the songs. And look, I think the biggest thing I'd say about that and um, a, a piece of cricket and advice that I got in Australia when I played a grade season out there was, and if people don't take the piss out of you, it probably means they don't like you. When people do take the piss out of you, they have a, at least a respect for you, whether it's begrudging or not. He's certainly one of those guys, a little bit like Ricky Ponting for me, that I've begun to like more after he's finished playing because he actually comes across, as Baldy said, as a really, really good guy um, and quite insightful in terms of some of the, uh, the commentary that he, he now um, makes about the game. And, and I've seen a lot of him in that sort of franchise world where they get them on the mics and, and really get um, under the hood of what's going through a bowler like that's um, mind as well. I, I, I do want to throw it back to Baldy. The, the shocking stat for me is... Um, considering you know 73 odd test matches and over 300 wickets doesn't have as many fifers as I thought he would have um, so you know that that's probably just a yeah and I've not done any research or statistics to say where that um, kind of sits in the echelons but I'd imagine it's going to be lower down the list than, than some of uh, some of his other stats particularly probably strike right as Broadie's mentioned so that was one surprising factor for me but again probably did bowl in a pretty good attack so um, wickets weren't often um yeah, or were often quite hard to come by with the people that he was bowling with. Yeah, a couple of things. He he had he has twelve fifers, so that ranks fortieth in the guys that qualified as sort of being evaluated for the Hall of Fame. So that's kind of at the lower end of the of the bowlers that qualify. His strike rate is eighteenth, so that's right up there. Ten wickets in a match is right up there as well. He was one of those guys where he's a bit rocks and diamonds, Mitchell Johnson. You know, that series against um, England in the Ashes, I think, 09 and, and 13, I think, lack of control, not as consistent, didn't perform as well as he can. And then he gets into that 2013-14 kind of tour of South Africa, and he just sighed through that South Africa, uh, that um, England lineup in 13-14 in Australia. And I think, I can't remember what, what year that series was against South Africa, but, you know, he went straight through them like a hot curry as well. You know, he was just a tremendous bowler when he was on song. And, you know, his peak series, he's striking in the low 30s. That 2013-14 England series in Australia strike struck at 30.5. The South Africa series, that was 2013-14 as well, same year, uh, struck at 34.4. So when he was on song, yeah, he did pick up those big bags of wickets. But, yeah, when he wasn't, there was a bit of a Jekyll and Hyde nature of his on-field performances. Yeah, for me, uh, when I think of uh, Mitchell Johnson, he's really inspired me to try out the um, Ben Stiller from Happy Gilmore sort of handlebar moustache set. Um, 
when I think about him as a cricketer, I think he's, he's probably about where I expected him to be, maybe a bit higher in this list than I expected him to be. Uh, and But then I go back and think about those peak series that you're talking about where, you know, the 08s, 09s where he took 60 wickets in each year uh, and then the, the Ashes in 2013. He was... He was absolutely devastating, and he he was right. He was that you're right. He was that enforcer that that Australia needed at that time. Um, other interesting fact is that he has eight golden ducks, which is high, I feel, for someone who can actually hold a bat. Yeah, he's got two test oh, hundreds. Yeah. Oh, he's got two first class hundreds and a test hundred. So yeah, hundred twenty three not out higher score, but eight golden ducks. I didn't I didn't pick that up in my analysis. It's a it's a good piece of work from you there, Raj. And saved, uh, yeah, saved by the the bell from uh, your uh, lack of research on his batting pedigree. There, Baldy, we'll uh, we'll pull you up a mark or two um, on that. I'm only joking, Baldwin family. And <laughs> um, let's move on in the list. We're going to go um, north again, um, pretty much as far north as we can get in terms of test um, playing nations. And back to one of my countrymen, Baldy, at number 87, the anonymous uh, number 87, 13 away from that hundred. Yeah, 87 on the list of our Hall of Famers is Alec Bedser. He's from uh, Reading, uh, and I'm going to try and pronounce this. It's Berkshire? Have I got that right? Berkshire. Berkshire. Oh, Berkshire. Okay, I got it wrong. So he's from he's from Reading, uh, born again around the same time as um, as Dennis Compton, 1918. So he was kind of 21 uh, when the war took over. He didn't really start his test career until after World War II, 1946 to 1955 for Alec Bedser. Just the 51 tests uh, but in that 51 test, 236 wickets in 51 t- uh, in 51 test matches, an average of 24.89, a pretty high strike rate of 67, uh, but five 10-wicket hauls, that's 12th all-time in our Hall of Fame candidates, uh, 15 fivers, and his, his rate of 10-wicket matches uh, per 100 matches is, is 5.43. So that's up in the top 10. His average above replacement player is, is 37th. You know, this guy was the best fast bowler in the world from effectively World War II to 1955. And his 236 test wickets as a world record stood for nine years before anyone was able to break it. So um, Alec Bedser, post-World War II, up against Lindwall and Miller from Australia as as kind of that fast bowling um, battle, but uh, just an incredible, incredible test cricketer and and an amazing record that kind of flies under the radar, I feel, uh, in terms of, you know, modern look at great fast bowlers over the years. Well, the, uh, we often talk about batters who average 50 as kind of a mark of greatness. Is there a, a kind of a bowling alternative? Because, uh, you know, when you try and make sense of some of the stats, particularly like looking back at some of the, the older players, you sort of see these, you know, really, really low numbers. And it's, it's, it feels, you know, to me, without doing any analysis, it's, it's quite hard to make sense of it. Yeah, well, Compton and Bedser are probably two great examples. Compton averaged 50, which is among Hall of Fame candidates, 35th all-time. And Alec Bedser averaged 24.89 with the ball, which is 37th all-time. So, you know, an average of 50 with the bat and an average of 25 or under with the ball gets you in that top 35 kind of era. So that's right in the wheelhouse of candidates that we want to have for our Hall of Fame. So from a bowling perspective, it's not just average. I mean, if I think about a guy like Sean Pollock, I would think about average. If I think about McGrath, I think about average. If I think about Shoah Bakhtar, I think about Mitchell Johnson, I think about strike rate. If I think about Shane Bond, I think about strike rate. So there are two kind of elements to that. And batters don't get analysed really in the same way as much, certainly in the past, 
Um, they do get their, their strike rates do come under scrutiny, uh, aka Dom Sibley, a little bit more these days. But traditionally, it's been all about the batting average and not so much about the strike rate. But for me, strike rate as a bowler is important. Strike rate as uh, a bowling average is also very important. And uh, certainly, Alec Bedsa under 25, right inside that top 37 um, for the guys that we looked at for the Hall of Fame. So for well, me, um, I think, go on, Raj. I was going to say, just another stats question for you, Baldy. So, obviously, he's got the five 10-wicket bags there, match 10 wickets and the 15 five-wicket bags. Mm. Bags. How does that? How far does that push him up the list? Are those milestones or those bags something that pushes him quite a long way up? Yeah, it does for me, um, particularly the 10 wickets in a match, because to take 10 wickets in a match is, is really, really hard. I mean, there are... There are only 12 players who've done it five times in their career. I can't remember how many times Murali's done it. I think it's like 22. But in, to take 10 wickets in a match, you have to truly dominate that that game as a bowler. Um, you know, his best bowling in a test match is 14 for 99 in a test match. That's an incredible domination of the opposition. Even in an era where 46 to 55, batting averages started to come down, bowling averages started to come down, um, I mean, there's a, there's a whole different discussion on, on what causes that, whether it's conditions or whether it's just a prevalence of great fast bowlers or, you know, maybe batters weren't as good, who knows. But in that era, bowling averages started to come down. His AARP, his average above replacement player, is, is plus four for that era. So, you know, the average bowler was averaging sort of 28, 29 in that era. He was averaging 25. Uh, so that's sort of top 40 p- type of performance. But certainly in terms of the way that I ranked players, if you can get big bags of wickets, um, particularly 10 wickets in a match um, on multiple occasions, then you're, you're ranking against players who weren't able to dominate in that kind of way certainly shot up. But you do have to factor in the fact that, you know, Alec Bedsa was bowling, not on his own, but, you know, he was the leader of that attack for England, whereas the four West Indian fast bowlers aren't going to have the same number of 10-wicket bags throughout the 80s because they had to share it around a little bit, you know? The thing I remember about Bedsa, he was chairman of selectors for England um, when I probably just about started watching Test cricket, that sort of Botham, um, Gower sort of era. Um and was involved in the game, you know, quite heavily. And I think also mentioned quite a lot as one of the greatest post-war England players. Um, you know, when you had those sort of rain break conversations in cricket in the 80s, he'd always come up. And the, the thing that stands out for me, he's bowled nearly twice as many balls in first-class cricket as James Anderson. And you think how many balls Jimmy Anderson's bowled. Um, Beds over 100,000 deliveries in um, first class cricket so it gets that longevity tick for me as well and the other thing I think we, we've talked about Bradman already in relation to Neil Harvey um, don't know um, whether the attribution of this quote is is correct but Bradman was um, quoted as saying he was one the best um, fast medium bowler that he faced and the stats would probably support that only Headley Verity getting Bradman out more times in test cricket than, than Alec Bedser did so um yeah, th- those are the bit of things that sort of spring to mind for me with with uh, with Alec Bedsa. Just picking up on that, um, it's really interesting when you go and look back at the the footage because I, when you look back, and I want to get into it into the person we're going to talk about next as well. But when you look at the footage of Bedsa, certainly when I did, he looked pretty military. Like, and it, it does yeah. look, you know, and it's it's ridiculous kind of comparing eras when you look at the video format of that because you know if you compared basketballers fifty years ago you know, that they wouldn't have the athleticism and things that they do today. So, you know, I don't want to discount him for that, but it picking up on what Binksy says, 
he was certainly credited as you know one of the best bowlers going around. Baldy, you, you know, I don't think you touched on it there, but he, he held the world record for, for most bowlers, so for most wickets as a test bowler mm. for a long time. So, yeah, it's that that's the one challenge of the eye test for uh, for looking at these older players. Yeah, he did. He held it for nine years, I think. And only Fred Truman, who held it for 12 years, has ever has held it longer between that 1946 and 2000 period. A, a tremendous fast bowler for England. Well, Lippy, I do want to move the conversation on because we've already been accused of uh, sort of Australian English bias. So we, we can't really talk about Bedsa for seven minutes when uh, we're only going to give Richard Hadley three a little bit later in this list. Um, so let's move on and get six minutes um, on the clock for the final um, person on our episode um, this evening. And we're not going um, too far from, uh, from Berkshire. Um, Baldy, we're going um, to a guy who played uh, the majority of his uh, his cricket uh, for Surrey. Yeah, eighty six on the list is is Jim Laker, and of course, uh, whenever anyone thinks of Jim Laker, of they of the, of course they think of the Laker Test. I, I don't really know where to start with with Jim Laker because every, everything that you think about is the 90, 19 for ninety Test, and you know ten wickets in an innings. 19 in the test. I mean, the fact that he did it twice against the Australians in the space of three months, of course, he did it in the ov- at the Oval as well, took 10 wickets in an innings um, in a warm-up game in that tour in, in, 19, in 1956 as well. You know, that series, 46 wickets at an average of 9.6 and a strike rate of 37 for a spinner is is almost as, as incredible as the pictures that I'm seeing here relayed to me on the screen as I'm talking to you guys. Only one player has got more wickets in a series, and that was Sid Barnes back in 1913-14. So that 46 wickets in the series, including the 19 that he got in that one test, is just an incredible, incredible performance. And it just won't be equaled. I don't think we're ever going to see again anyone get close to 19 wickets in a test match because I just don't think conditions will suit. Um, There's a lot more behind... The, the greatness of Jim Laker's career other than just that that one series. I mean, if you have a look at his home series, you know, he takes, I think, 126 wickets at home from 1949 to 1958, an average of 15.6 at home. And that's including a series against the West Indies where he averaged 86. So, you know, his averages were almost all under 25. There was a series against Australia where he averaged nine. He averaged 12 against South Africa the year before. Uh, he averaged 10 against New Zealand in 1958 in England. So just an incredible bowler in English conditions. And I just think the way that wickets are structured these days and, and they're so batting friendly and the wickets are covered, obviously, as well all the time, we're just not going to see kind of domination by a finger spinner um, like we're going to see with Jim Laker. You talked about where to, to pick up and you've hit us with all those stats. And, the, the, you, you know, his stats tell just an incredible story. And, you know, nine for 19 for... For 90 is just remarkable and like say probably never get beaten but you know I touched on Bedser and how when you watch him on the YouTube footage you can't you can't picture that bowler bowling and being successful in test cricket today whereas actually when you you watch Jim Laker it I don't think it would have taken a lot more a lot of tweaks to his action or anything like that to be successful today it, it looks very much like an off spinner you would see going around and, and and someone that would have, you know, bowls with good pace and bowls with a good action. So, yeah, I, I was, you know, surprised really to see that because you just, like I said, you, you're you comparing errors. It, it's normally never comparable when you look at it on video. Yeah, that's one point I wanted to make as well, Lippy, is when I we did go back and have a look at the, the YouTube stuff, I 
could see that he could fit very well into the, the current current days, current era. Um, what I found incredible was his 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 economy, his economy. I've got my shirt off for him. Um, I I really um, I, I was I was completely amazed by the the amount. He took the wickets, right? He got those 19 wickets against Australia. We know he can take wickets, but he bowled he bowled at such an economical rate. Uh, I think there's three entries, I think, in the top most economical bowling spells of over 10 overs. He's got three entries in there. One of them was 24 overs with 20 maidens in it. Uh, just incredible bowling. Yeah, geez, for, for anyone who's uh, – we're obviously uh, an audio production here, but it is very hard to, to, uh, to chat when – Raj has taken his top off, but Binksy, you must have some thoughts on on Jim Laker. Yeah, look, I guess again, it, it, it to be honest, comes down to that Ashes conversation. It it comes down to the fact that he did it quite often against our biggest foes. And um, growing up, you you heard so much about that nineteen wicket um, game, and also his partnership um, at Surrey with another spinner, um, Locke and Laker. So you know that they're named as a sort of a a formidable double act um, in terms of left arm spin from, from one end. But yeah, really the thing for me, Lippy, is, is that eye test when you look at a lot of this footage and um, even looking at the footage of Neil Harvey, you know, who looked a very, very silky player um, on the footage from a, a relatively similar era to, to, to Laker, Laker perhaps a, a, little bit, um, a little bit later, certainly in terms of the end of his first class career. And but yeah, just like you, you know, just like you really said in terms of that eye test, he looks like he would do a job now as a you know as an off. He gave it a real big rip, got through his action, um, and and look, I think um, I, I'm, I don't want to be parochial, but that might just come up from the fact that he was born in Yorkshire and he's just a pretty no nonsense um, cricketer with a yeah with, with a uh, a high work ethic as well. Just a question, Binksy, on the. Um... The, the the domestic stuff, the county stuff. They won seven. Sorry, won seven consecutive uh, championships. How significant is that? Oh, well, put that into any sporting context. Um, in an eighteen or at that time sixteen county competition, um, winning seven yeah seven championships in an era. That's like the Chicago Bulls. That's like Manchester United. You know, that's like the. Uh, Vodafone Warwick no it's not so look it, it's oh, um it, it is you know it is an absolutely amazing achievement for him to have been involved in that and again just looking at the way that these guys hone their craft playing um county cricket as well 450 first class matches um again over 100,000 balls bowled and uh yeah nearly 2,000 first class wickets so you know these guys really um didn't know the the meaning of workload management did they no, just incredible, and and I think he he's probably one of the guys that would translate so well into the modern era, even in multi format. I I think he would be a great white ball and T Twenty bowler, just because he gets through the crease quite quickly and he can bowl with flight and with and with turn and bounce, but also he can really get the ball through as well. You know, so guys like Jim Laker and Derek Underwood, I think, would survive brilliantly in a modern day at least white ball arena, if if not also in the Test arena as well, because they were so unerringly accurate. We've run out of time here, and but I would, did just want to say, any listeners that do have uh, memories of these players that we're talking about, please email us in because we'd, we'd love to hear your stories of actually watching them live. It's something that we never got to experience, so we'd, yeah, we'd really love to hear that. Well, boys, that does wrap up this episode of the Cricketing Hall of Fame. 
would urge you to dip back into the back catalogue. We'll be back with this week in cricket next week as well, talking England, India. If you do want some top order merchandise, please jump onto our Facebook page as well, where you can order, order a retro look uh, New Zealand uh, cricket shirt with a 1992 World Cup um, inspired um, colorway um, and that's available alongside some other items as well we'll be back next week with um, more cricket i'm really looking forward to the next episode of this as well because we're going to talk wicket keeping and it's pretty controversial so stay tuned uh, for the next episode in the hall of fame and our regular programming as well good night god bless see you soon <laughs>